Hallelujah. We thank you, Father, for this day that you have made. We rejoice and are glad in it. Father, the extension of your grace and mercy toward us is unfathomable. You extended grace toward us in the death of Christ, your Son, upon the tree. And Calvary's payment satisfied the wrath of God deserving for our sin. For this, we are so thankful today. This is the day that you have made. The day Today is the day of salvation for all who will turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone. We thank you, Lord, for the precious gift of your holy word, the true and inalterable Lord, and forever, never withering or failing or fading uh, measure and standard of truth that has been and will be forever, Lord, established in your proclamation. It is here before us in recorded, written form for us to appreciate and for us to be encouraged by. We thank you for this. We thank you for your grace, Lord, that has brought alongside of us believers, brothers and sisters in the faith, those who are co-ransomed, those who are co-adopted, Lord, alongside us into the beloved. And now we as the glorious family of God fellowship together in the great privileges of your grace and mercy and the life that we now live in light of the saving power of Jesus Christ. And for this fellowship, we are so thankful. Lord, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would strengthen and equip us for our call in Christ Jesus, and that you would also use the proclamation of your scripture to draw the lost unto salvation. We pray as your word is proclaimed this day that you would be pleased to use the foolishness as far as man is concerned of preaching to God uh, magnify and glorify yourself so that we, Lord Jesus, might be strengthened, that we might be built up in our holy faith, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We thank you for accomplishing these things by the power of your indwelling spirit. We thank you for this great and gracious opportunity that we have. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for the Lord drawing us together today to glorify Him and to focus our attention on what He has proclaimed. Would you turn with me in the pages of your Scripture to Psalm 86? In the center of your Bible and in about the center of the Psalms, we find ourselves in our Psalm series. This is a prayer of David, Psalm 86, 17 verses written by Israel's greatest king until Christ, that is, that give us some framework and Uh, some depth of understanding of the concept of prayer. The aim of this morning's message is that we might deepen our expressions of worship and prayer, beholding the Word of God as it's presented to us in Psalm 86. Again, as we look closely at this song of worship and this prayer, that we might deepen our own expressions of worship and prayer, beholding the Word of God. The title of this morning's message is In-Depth Prayer. As we look closely at this expression of communication, this plea, this request that David lifts up to the Lord, alongside his proclamation of the glories of God in this prayer, we find elements of in-depth prayer, I, I trust, and that will basically structure our message this morning. Before we get started in our text, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word? As we behold together these words, again, listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today under this title, A Prayer of David. Here we have Psalm 86, verse 1. 
Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you, you are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Verse 8, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. (coughs) For you are great (coughs) and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Verse 14, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to a passage we'll touch upon in a moment, Exodus uh, chapter 34, Exodus chapter 34. I was reading some commentary on Psalm 86, and I came across this quote, this little gem from William J. William J. says of prayer, quote, prayer is the design of trouble. The evidence that it is sanctified, its solace, and the medium of deliverance from it. Let me say that again. Prayer is the design of trouble, the evidence that it is sanctified, its solace, and the medium of deliverance from it. Language might be a little uh, antique for us today, but consider this basic sentence or this uh, short sentence and the power <coughs> or the depth that it expresses. Prayer is the design of trouble. What does John or William J. mean? Prayer is, or the uh, design of trouble, or the purpose of affliction that God brings upon you. The reason why hardship attends your way is in part that it might move you to pray. Prayer is the design of trouble. The hardships of David's life moved him to cry out in desperation for help and hope from the only true source, from his God. Uh, Jay goes on, the evidence that it is sanctified, in other words, trouble can grind us down. Our trials and afflictions, the difficulties and the cares of life can reduce us to uh, much less than what we once were. They can uh, strip us of our joy, send us into a depression, uh, uh, send us to the end of our rope, to rock bottom, 
uh, and to uh, this deeply uh, despair, the depths of despair that we have not otherwise imagined. But when our trouble moves us to prayer, evidence that it is sanctified is the fact that the difficulties of life are moving us closer to God. In other words, how do you redeem something or make something holy that on the surface seems so terrible and so difficult, so trying? Only when that thing moves you to a closer relationship, walk with and dependency on the Lord. Jay says that prayer is the solace of affliction. In other words, sometimes the only source of comfort is not the empty words of someone says it's going, someone saying it's going to be all right. Uh, it'll be okay. Just hang in there. Sometimes life is so difficult that phrases like that, uh, even well-meaning, feel like a slap in the face. But prayer is not like that. Prayer is a relationship with a God we know, and David's testimony is as such, is sovereign, is in control, and has purpose in affliction. Therefore, prayer for the darkest night of the soul is its only solace, namely prayer that is based upon the whole scope of God's means of grace, the Word and His Spirit. And finally, it's the medium of deliverance itself. What does that mean? It's the way to be delivered, to be brought out, to receive joy again, to have your feet set on the rock. It's crying out to God in the day of your distress. These are observations on prayer that stem from a contemplation of Psalm 86. This little pithy quote from William J. is inspired by listening to the words of David in his psalm, which raises a question in our minds. If Psalm 86 was the meditative source of Jay's quote that we just read, one might wonder if such a passage moved David to write Psalm 86. In other words, was there a passage of Scripture that was in David's mind that helped him and inspired him to frame this prayer? I think the answer is yes, and that's why I'm having you turn to Exodus 34 this morning. We turned here last time we were in the Psalms. Exodus, 4, or Exodus 34 is in the background of Psalm 85 as well. But listen to these words and remember them because they will be familiar to us. Their echoes will be heard in Psalm 86 as we move through it today. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, we have this confessional statement. From the Lord Himself, Yahweh Himself, to Moses on the mountain. The Word of God declares, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there, that is, stood with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses' response is recorded in verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. No doubt these words moved David to worship as well to bow his head, even in affliction, and to write this psalm inspired by the Holy Spirit, using his own word, Exodus 34, 5 through 7, the words of David come alive. (laughs) The historical occasion for David's prayer, we don't know exactly, specifically what it was. It could have been a number of things. 
Turn with me to one more passage as an example. This is 1 Samuel 30. David's life was marked by all kinds of struggle. He had many troubles in life and many triumphs. And so Psalm 86 would be fitting for a number of these. Let me give you one example. This is 1 Samuel 30, 1 through 6. Imagine the wind that would be removed from your sails if you were in David's shoes in this situation. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, verse 1, on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negeb and against Ziklag. Ziklag is a city where David's family and the families of his men had resided at the time. Continues, they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women, the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. <coughs> David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David's men were so upset that this city had been overrun when presumably they felt that their families were safe, that they were ready to kill their leader. Talk about adding insult to injury. And all of your, your family has been kidnapped and the families of all your men who have risked their lives to defend you and for the cause of your kingdom that is yet on the horizon, surrounded by enemies, including the reigning king, Saul himself. Imagine this weight. The men cried. They lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Where is solace to be found, in the words of William J., in an experience such as this? The Scriptures say in Samuel 30, verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And if you want to know what that sounded like, I submit to you, Psalm 86 could well describe his words. Turn again to Psalm 86, 1, and listen with that background in mind. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life. For I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day, glad in the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Of course, later in the chapter, verse 14, there is a specific instance, or an instance that's more specific. He says, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. and They do not set you before them. And the Ziklag incident comes to mind among others. <clears throat> That's a little background, introduction, and context. Let me give you an outline today for this passage, Psalm 86. Under this heading, heading elements of in-depth prayer. What are some elements of prayer that we can glean from David's example here of how to pray when we are under stress, under distress that he experienced? Number one, there's plea and appeal. That's request and the basis of the request, plea and appeal. Number two, there's a sovereignty perspective. That is, David remembers the power of God to give him perspective in his situation. Thirdly, he asks for a unified heart, that his heart would be unified, and we'll learn in context what that might mean. And finally, 
there's a, there's a, a request for the application of steadfast love. May the steadfast love of the Lord be applied to the servants of the Lord, and the application of, of this also is different yet in the same prayer to the enemies of God's people. In other words, sometimes steadfast love of the Lord uh, extended to His servant comes also in the form of judgment against His enemies. So these are the elements of in-depth prayer that we find in Psalm 86. Let's consider a little more closely plea and appeal. This will be verses 1 through 7. I want you to notice how this prayer is structured. There's a beautiful symmetry here. David brings his request before the Lord, but they're followed by three sets of two, signaled by the conjunction four. So David will request something. He'll say, for instance, in 86.1, incline your ear, which means listen to me. It's a poetic way of saying lean in closely so that you can hear my cry. He says, and answer me. So listen closely to my cry and answer me once you've heard. And then there's two four, or then there's two four statements. Four, I am poor and needy. Then there's a second request, another request, third, preserve my life, for I am godly. So if you look at these first seven verses, kind of structured around these four statements, we find that the first two uh, are with reference to David's need. The torment of the author, the plaguing a difficulty that's following him shapes his request. He says in this context, incline your ear, answer to me, listen, please, I am desperate, you must hear, you must intervene. These requests are as follows, incline your ear, answer me, preserve my life. David is expressing his desperate need uh, for the Lord to intervene on his behalf. But this is his plea. But he makes this, a plea, uh, makes this plea in the context of two appeals, and those are the four statements. Incline your ear, answer me for, on the ground that I am poor and needy. In other words, David is, ad- is admitting that in and of himself, he is powerless to affect his situation. My hands are tied, I have no strength, I am not God, I am not the captain of my destiny. I can't by a force of my will affect the future independent of you. I am not going to listen to the lie of the serpent that I can manipulate the future by virtue of my authority, my power, my ability. David's desperate situation leads him to confess the desperation of his own soul that without his sovereign God, he is ill-effective, he has nothing, he cannot save himself. I am poor, I am needy. This is 101 of the gospel. When the gospel comes to you and proclaims that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, lest you be judged, there is no way to perfect yourself. You cannot go back into your life and rewrite it. There is no time machine that allows you to start from the beginning and do it perfectly the next time. You are poor and you are needy. And when you come to Christ for the very first time, legitimately so, it sounds like Psalm 86.1. It's a similar application. Deep distress. The sin that I have committed will incur for me judgment, but incline your ear to me, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life. Save me. Now, the second four statement is interesting, and it lets us know that David is himself a believer. He says, for I am godly. What does this mean? This does not mean that David is righteous in and of himself. 
but instead it means that he is of the God type, that God has set him apart, has sanctified him, has anointed him for his purposes. David understands that there's a sovereign call on his life. In other words, God has staked my, or his glory on my salvation. God has promised and covenanted to David that he would rule and reign as king on the throne of Israel. And therefore, if God's word is to stand, so must David. He is godly in this sense. So David is in this position where he can't change his own circumstances, yet he knows God has a purpose. So therefore, he cries, save your servant, plea and appeal. And these ideas relate to our situation as well. When you cry out to the Lord, trust and believe that God has staked His glory on your salvation. In answering your plight, in saving your soul, He will be glorified. He has promised, as we have already read and proclaimed from the Scripture this morning, to ransom for Himself a people so that one day all nations might serve Him. We see that in our text as well. These are great grounds for which to make your appeal when you cry out to the Lord. Plea and appeal. First, David expresses these according to his need, in the context of his need. Secondly, there's recourse. The second two four statements occur in verses three and four. Here's the request Be gracious to me, O Lord. And then four, to you do I cry all the day. Second request in this category Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. To whom shall he turn? There is none besides the Lord. David, on the ground of his only recourse, the Lord is his sole means of salvation. He cries to him, Be gracious to me, he asks, gladden the soul of your servant. Return to me the joy that is lost in the wake of this great tragedy. Extend to me the uh, love and the care that I do not deserve. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for you are the only recourse. To you alone do I turn for help and for hope. I forsake idols. I forsake other means of escape. I forsake other advertisements for freedom and for joy. I say in my prayer that you alone are the lifter of my soul. You alone are my salvation, my sure footing, my strength, my shield, my buckler, my helper in the day of trouble. Other psalms come to mind. And thirdly, under plea and appeal, needs Recourse, finally, sufficiency. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Verse 5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Do you hear uh, Exodus 34 ringing in David's prayer? That uh, promise of the Lord that was given to Moses on the mountain, the Lord Uh, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but will no means clear the guilty. And so it continues. This is the ground of David's appeal. He cries out to the Lord, asking him again, Give ear, listen to my plea for grace in verse 6, but do it on this basis. The basis of your promise to my forefather Moses, that you are a Lord who is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. This 
Psalm 86 is the sound of the call upon the Lord. It is an exemplary prayer. It is the heart cry of an individual who takes seriously the promises of God and the fact that the Lord alone is his salvation. It takes seriously the name of God. Whenever in your scriptures you see the name LORD in all caps, I trust that your Bible might do this as well. Notice in Psalm 86, 1, for instance, O Lord, there's a large capital L and then three smaller capital letters, O-R-D. That is the way the translators have chosen to denote the term Yahweh. Yahweh was the revealed name of God to Moses as well, which carried with it all uh, carried with it the meaning of covenant keeper, the self-contained one, the one who needed no other, the one who was in and of himself sufficient to satisfy everything, to keep his covenant and to fulfill his promises. And so to the Lord, to this name, David makes his appeal. Again, he cries out to Yahweh in verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, that is, covenant keeper, the one who extends steadfast love by virtue of his own power, the one uh, beside whom there is no other God and beside whom no one and of whom no one can destroy his purposes. Oh, give ear, O Lord, O Yahweh, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. This third category of plea and appeal refers to God's sufficiency. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving Abounding in steadfast love. In other words, your grace is sufficient for my problems. You are powerful, O Yahweh, covenant keeper, to give ear, to hear, to listen to my plea for grace, and to save me. In this, uh, in this passage, David is recalling, no doubt, Exodus 34, as he cries, Give ear, listen to my plea, and do so on the basis that you are a forgiving God, abounding in steadfast love to even thousands of generations as we have read in the context of the Pentateuch, book of Exodus. Elements of in-depth prayer. David opens with this kind of plea and appeal structure, emphasizing needs, recourse, and sufficiency. Second major element, verses 8 through 10, a sovereignty perspective. Let's read these verses, then I'll give you a brief illustration. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Do you notice a shift in theme in this psalm from verses 1 through 7? David is intensely personal, and we sense he's in imminent danger. There's huge problems in his life. And then suddenly... There's a shift. Verses 8 through 10, step back, and there is a sovereignty perspective. He takes a view, a panoramic view, if you will, of the power of God that is demonstrated in other areas of history and of life, and from this he draws faith. Although David's prayer is intensely personal, and although there is this occasion provides uh, such an emergency that it demands immediate intervention... Nevertheless, David takes in this panoramic view of the Lord's greatness in spite of his pressing personal problems. How many times, let me ask you, Saint, how many times do your pressing personal problems close in your vision around you so your faith is constricted and your idea of God is much smaller and 
you are so frantic that suddenly all you can see is the difficult emergency right in front of you. This is the tendency. We, uh, in kind of our flight or fright, uh, flight or, or a fright or flight response or what have you. Psychologists even testify to the fact that when humans are in stress, our natural reaction is to frantically panic and to seek for immediate escape. And if we can't find it, our mind gets so focused that we lose perspective. This is what it means to panic to our own peril. David avoids this spiritually by taking a panoramic view. He steps back from his own problems in prayer for a moment and says, you know what? There is none like you among the gods. Uh, Consider this illustration. You drive, you follow your map, you drive all the way to the Grand Canyon and you sit upon the precipice overlooking this amazing natural wonder that God has created. And you do not take it in because you are so frustrated you cannot fold your map. You know, back before GPS and so forth, if you guys recall the days when we used a map to drive, and sometimes the multiple folds and everything, this, it, this illustration is dated, I realize, it probably won't last that much longer. But I remember being frustrated trying to figure out how a map was folded, and imagine sitting there at the Grand Canyon, and you're trying to fold this map, and the more you try, the more frustrated you get, and the more you push it against a crease that would naturally lead you otherwise, the more the, the lit, uh, let you lessen your chances of actually getting the thing right. And right in front of you is your destination all along. All you have to do is set your problem aside, folding your stupid map, look out of your window, and the purpose for your journey is right in front of you. You can take in with majestic Uh, All the majestic, awe-inspiring beauty of this natural landscape that God has created in front of you. This is an illustration to show us how uh, how, uh, petty our problems sometimes are, especially when they blind us from the majesty of God. It's like uh, never seeing the Grand Canyon because you're so frustrated trying to fold the map that you use to get you there. David does not do this. He, instead, he takes this panoramic view. He says, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. So this sovereignty perspective that David notes takes in the truth that among all of the gods, that is, claims to authority, the Lord, his God, Yahweh, is chief among them. This reminds us of Psalm 82, which we covered not so long ago. Psalm 82.1. God has taken his place in the divine council. Again, we have this reference, lowercase g, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. What does this mean? God is in the midst of gods? Is this a polytheistic view? Does the Bible believe that there are other gods? No, that's not the case at all. Verse 6, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So the concept of gods, of false gods, the Bible recognizes, but listen to this. The concept of false gods in Scripture is only useful insofar as their ridiculous status, these figments of man's uh, rebellious, idolatrous imagination, the concept of false gods in Scripture is only useful insofar as their ridiculous status and their foolish adherence only serve to magnify the one true God in His matchless and unlimited power and perfections. In other words, if I were to take the advice of my pagan neighbors, I would seek the help of Dagon, Ashereth, Baal, these, all, these other false gods. 
But they are so ridiculously absurd as they are nothing more than the projections of an overactive imagination of a wicked, rebellious idolater that it helps me gain perspective. There is none like Yahweh among the quote-unquote gods. The term gods also in Scripture refers to human judges. That is, those with delegated authority, when serving in their office appropriately, are called to execute judgment on God's behalf. So in that sense, they're magistrates, they're delegates, they're deputies of God's authority. The Bible sometimes refers to human uh, agents, magistrates, rulers, judges, kings in this way as lowercase gods. And these can be formidable and seem to hold our life in their hands. David is no stranger to this reality. Saul himself was a lowercase God who threatened David's life at times. But David takes this panoramic view of God's sovereignty. Among the, uh, quote, gods, Saul, who may be chasing him at the time he's writing the song, among the, quote, gods, the false notions of higher authorities or deity, which is nothing but the figment of pagans' imagination, O oh Lord, there, are, there is none like you, nor are there any works like yours." This is a panoramic view that allows David's problems to suddenly uh, be put in perspective because God is so huge, He's so matchless and unlimited in His power and perfections, and He proves it by contrast to other concepts of authority, and He proves it by the record of His wonderful, manifold works through history. Second reference, not only are you great among the gods, David confesses, but among the nations as well. Verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. God is great among the gods. God is great among the nations. Of course, this reminds us of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 pits the Messiah against the nations by asking the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against His anointed. It goes on to quote of their rebellion and so forth. Later in the, ver or in the chapter, verse 8, we read this. Ask of me, this is the Lord saying to the Messianic one, the Messiah to come, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In verse 9 of Psalm 86, this is echoed in, in a part, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. The, message, the consistent message of Scripture is this. Though there are many nations, many claims to authorities, many different spheres and realms of sovereignty and rule, as it were, that one of two things will happen in every case. Either they will be subdued by the message of the gospel and become worshipers of the one true God, the nations, go and disciple nations, teaching them everything I've commanded you, baptizing them, Matthew 20, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Or, if they do not repent, if they're obstinate in their rebellion, if they do not turn from their false gods and false claims to authority, then they will be dashed like a cheap clay pot by the iron rod of the Messiah. Those are the two things that happen. Now, can you conceive of any higher authority in your mind in America today, this world, 2018, than elected or appointed officials in major 
global empires like America, uh, uh, these dominating forces and influences in our world today. No, I submit to you, the idea of gods, like the concept of a Dagon, a, a, a Astrith, or Baal, that's sort of foreign and archaic in our minds today. But I'll tell you what, people fear and people worship states, nations, authorities, administrations, rulers, uh, rulers policies, uh, governments. They absolutely quake and appeal and pray to these kinds of things in our day today. It's the great idolatry that is present even in our land. But notice what David says. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, including our own. We will be reduced to the clay shards of a cheap clay pot by the iron rod of Christ himself or... In this nation, we will bow and worship His majesty and glorify His name. This is the sovereign perspective that David brings. In other words, he's saying that the highest imaginable authorities in our mind are ants compared to the sovereign power of our God. Therefore, how much smaller is this affliction that is assailing me right now? This is the sovereignty perspective. This is the panoramic view. David closes this point by appealing to God's wondrous works in verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So next week we will pick up on our Genesis series, preaching the end of Genesis 3. But how many of the wondrous works of our God have we seen already in our Genesis series? We've seen in the record of Scripture the creation of the world and everything that is in it by the spoken word of our God, bringing out of nothing, ex nihilo, the world and all that is in it. The earth is the Lord's, the psalmist therefore proclaims, and all that is in it, the people, everyone, kings, paupers, animals, weather, nations, stars, galaxies, the universe, everything is the Lord's. The mighty works of our God are manifest in creation, and we have beheld them as we've studied Genesis of late. More than this, the manifold works of the Lord, in some ways more glorious still, are manifold, are evident in salvation, in the work of redemption. How can God be righteous and we be justified? And we've studied this in Galatians 2. It is done in and through and only in and through the death of Jesus Christ. Who was judged for our sin on Calvary? Whose death paid the just penalty so that we might be in right standing? And salvation is by grace through faith in that work of Christ alone. And that is a wondrous work. So as you pause in prayer, even in the midst of deep trial and problems, remember that God is so much greater than any of the highest uh, conceivable authorities that we see on this lowly earth And remember that His wondrous works are manifest all through history, redemptive and natural, and His wondrous works will yet be made known in the future. Elements of in-depth prayer, plea and appeal, sovereignty perspective, number three, unified heart. Verses 11 through 13, David has another request. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. An important phrase. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul 
from the depths of Sheol. Have you ever been so distraught that there seems to be many voices shouting to gain your attention in your soul, in your mind? Follow this idea. Follow over here. Look to this for hope. Follow this over there. And your heart and soul are torn a million directions by promises, most of them, if not all, vanities, for how to better your situation. David asks for clarity. He asks for a singular purpose. He asks for soundness of mind when he says, Teach me, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Consolidate, that is to say, all my wandering affections, all the voices in the wind, would you silence them till the only thing that remains is the fear of your greatness, the fear of your name, that is, an awe and reverence, respect of faith and a dependency on the Lord, that is, Yahweh, the covenant keeper, as my hope and help in time of need. Consolidate my goals, my desires, my joys, my hopes, my dreams, my preferences, my victories, my memories, my despairings, under this banner, this unifying principle of godly fear, that I might give you thanks with my whole heart. In order for David to give thanks to the Lord with his whole heart, that is to express to the Lord singular trust in his word, all of the varied voices and the wayward thinking, the different affections, the myriad of sinful roads that he might travel must be consolidated into one way, truth, and life. Then and only then can he give thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. Verse 11 is a powerful verse. Uh, This was brought to my attention in part through the help of one commentator. I'm going to bring up his quote. Again, the verse is, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This verse speaks of an incredible balance in the Christian life and the application of the gospel as it works its way out in discipleship. So this uh, quote is from John Hyatt. In the 1800s, he wrote the following commentary on this verse. He says, In the disposition of mind, which is expressed in these words, the believer stands opposed to four descriptions of character. Number one, the ignorant and thoughtless sinner who neither regards his way nor his end. So if we are taught the Lord's way, and we walk in His truth, then we put aside, or we are, this verse is then opposed, it stands against the ignorant and thoughtless sinner who does not have regard for his way or his end. But there's other uh, tendencies, sins, and evil that it stands against as well. Secondly, the antinomian, which means against the law. The antinomian who is zealous for doctrines and averse from practice of religion. So a Christian who is Christian in confession only, but does not follow through on the truth, there is no evidence of it. He's basically lawless in his life, though his words might be otherwise. Number three, the Pharisee who disregards religious sentiment and makes practice all in all. In other words, he thinks that his works can save him. And finally, the hypocrite who appears to be divided between religion and the world. Now, these are all pitfalls that we can fall into as we seek to live out the Christian life. What is the one way, the narrow path through them all? It is this, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name.
What a great summary statement of the Christian life, the spiritual life in Christ. Teach me your way. It starts with your word. Proclaim unto me your truth that I may walk in it, that I might follow you as your disciples did. And unite my heart, preserve my heart, and, uh, and prevent me from being distracted from all the voices that would lead me into these various pitfalls that Hyatt identifies. A powerful verse indeed. As David cries for this unified heart, he says furthermore in verse 12, For great is your steadfast love toward me, again echoing Exodus 34, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Great is your steadfast love toward me, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. I forgot a verse, I was going to cover 12. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. David says, that the truth of God's salvation is such that it ought to compel him to thank the Lord with all that is in his being and for all of time, my whole being and forever. I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. He recognizes that this calling and obedience to the Lord is one that fundamentally transforms everything about him and fundamentally, re, uh, and, and fundamentally shapes his future forevermore. And then we move to verse 12, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And here again, we have the gospel of grace, do we not? We have Galatians 2 in the New Testament revelation. These words of steadfast love can be fulfilled in Christ alone. We have the echoes of the promise of Exodus 34. Great is the Lord's steadfast love toward us in his promises fulfilled in the Messiah to come. And this is a powerful source. This has the power to lift up his soul, David's soul, from the depths of Sheol. What is Sheol? It's a place of despair. It's the bitter end. It's the place of the dead. It's hell itself. The absolute worst case scenario that you could imagine physically and spiritually is Sheol. And David has tasted the reality, the probability that this is his end. That he would be utterly consumed physically, spiritually, and die uh, in uh, in indignity and shamefully and be judged for eternity. But his condition changed. Something happened. He recognized in Christ to come and in the promise of God's word in his hand in Exodus 34 that the steadfast love of the Lord, that is the unchanging covenant-keeping power of God extended toward him in friendship, in fellowship, in family bond and connection, in covenant, had the strength to deliver his soul from the depths of hell. Praise the Lord for the power of his grace that is evident in this confession. Final element of in-depth prayer, we've covered plea and appeal, sovereignty perspective, a unified heart. Finally, David closes Psalm 86 with a request for applied, steadfast love. So what does David ask for in light of what he said before? 14, O Lord, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me, Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me 
may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Would you turn to Revelation 15? We'll close there in a moment, which was also our worship text today. There's passages or there's phrases from Psalm 86 that are echoed in this worship song in Revelation 15. And the context is very similar to what David is experiencing here. For David, answers to his prayer would come in an application of steadfast love in two ways. Its implications for his enemies, and therefore the enemies of God, and its implications for uh, the Lord's servant, David himself. Uh, You can rest assured in one thing as David did, that if the enemies of the Lord so posture themselves that they oppose you in every turn, eventually and without fail there will come a time when you will be rescued and they will be judged. Now we pray, because God has saved us from deserving judgment, that all of our human enemies would bow their knee and that they would be subdued to Christ by salvation. This is how God subdues His enemies in salvation. He causes them to cry out in confession and repentance for their sin and place faith in Jesus Christ. And thus, a one-time enemy of the gospel is now your friend. Think of Saul on the way to Damascus. He was a persecutor of the church, had obtained arrest warrants to persecute, if not kill, Christians, had made it his personal mission to stamp out the early church and was successful in doing so, had stood by and held the jackets of those who whipped stones at the first martyr Stephen, and something happened. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, proclaims from heaven itself, Saul, Saul! Why are you persecuting me? He's struck blind. His heart is changed. In due course, in a few days, he meets a man, Ananias, who proclaims to him the word of God, that he has set, the Lord has set Paul apart to be an apostle. You guys remember what happened? Children, who wrote more of the New Testament by book count than anybody else? Who? Say again. Paul, the apostle Paul ended up writing more of the New Testament by book count than any other author. Paul became a friend of the church in a way that's difficult to describe. He laid down his life for the gospel. And in this sense, God subdued his enemy. I have a question for you. What happened to those who issued the arrest warrants to Saul? What happened to the priestly class, to the Pharisee class, to the religious elite who stayed in Jerusalem, obstinate against the Lord and his Messiah? In A.D. 70, something happened to, the, to Jerusalem. Does anyone know what it was, young people? What happened in A.D. 70? It was absolutely destroyed. The judgment of the Lord was prophesied by Christ Himself, and it rained upon the city. And those who were the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, which were described in Revelation as the synagogue of Satan, were judged. Was there ground for God's people to rejoice when this battle campaign was waged against their enemies? Well, in a sense, there was. Although we grieve the loss of any individual, we celebrate the fact that God's glory is seen in the destruction of His enemies. We pray that they would turn to Him in repentance and faith, but we also recognize that if they do not, that God may, in the words of David, show us a sign of His favor, that those who hate us may see and be put to shame because the Lord Yahweh has helped us and comforted us. The application of steadfast love 
in many cases, is judgment on God's enemies. And in, with respect to His servants, it is always and only grace and mercy. Where do you stand today? Are you an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ? Or are you His servant? If you are His servant, then you have realized the grace and the mercy. But if you are His enemy, you stand in the wake of His judgment. And you must repent. Be subdued by the gospel lest you be destroyed when the rod of iron finally, the patience wears thin and God brings his, the evidence of His glory in the destruction of His foes. Turn with me to Revelation 15. Let us close with these words. Verses 2 through 4. John says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those also who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, quote, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you, you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Psalm 86 language. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Notice, however, the verses that follow. Verse 5, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and the seven plagues, clothed with pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave this to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. These words speak to events in history, uh, sometimes called the coming of the Lord or a day of reckoning. And they all point forward to an ultimate coming of the Lord or a day of reckoning, where all of history and all its inhabitants, all humans, will be placed in two camps, sheep and goats, those who are enemies, those who are servants. Those who are worshiping Him, having been ransomed by the power of the gospel going forth uh, for a, uh, and assembled as a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And those who stand yet condemned because they did not bow before the righteous, almighty God, His mighty ways, and trust His way alone of salvation. In that day, they will feel the wrath of God forever and ever. But there will be a chorus of worship that rises from the throats of the redeemed, praising the Lord, who is great and to be feared and to be glorified, saying, you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a context of Exodus 34, Psalm 86, Revelation 15, and all of Scripture. I pray that you would heed the word of God this day, and if you find yourself relating to David in any sense, that you would take these elements of prayer and begin to implement them in your life. I also pray that if you find yourself not relating because you are not sure that you stand in David's shoes, having been a partaker of the steadfast love of God in the grace of Jesus Christ, that you would repent of your sin and place your faith in Him and turn uh, from, this, from any other hope for salvation to Christ alone be His servant this day. Let us close in prayer. O oh Lord, we are thankful for Your holy word.
that comes to us with power and authority and changeless truth that has the ability to shape our minds, to conform us to the image of Christ, to transform us by the renewing of our minds, Lord, to teach us your ways that we might walk in your truth, that we might bring glory to your name. I pray that your word would do exactly that in the hearts of the hearers of this message today. And I pray that it would equip us to shine, Lord Jesus, the light, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, even amongst the dark world. We thank you, Lord, that your power is sufficient, your grace is amazing. Lord, your love is steadfast and everlasting, and that you are good and forgiving. It's to you that we turn, Yahweh, covenant keeper, and it's to Christ, your provision for our sins, that we stake our claim, our plea, and our appeal. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.